Thank you so much. It's great, it's great to be here. Um, I, I have a very soft spot for QEH because when I was, both when I was a student but also when I was working in Oxfam, I used to go and hang out in the library a lot. It's that wonderful old room you, you, you had up there. Um, so, well, it, it's, uh, thanks so much for inviting me to be here. I, I wanted to start actually just with um, a quick anecdote because I'm not really an educationalist by background or, or by training. But the, the way I got interested in education, got involved in education, was when I was working in Oxfam. And at, at that time we were doing a lot of work on structural adjustment policies and, and debt in Africa in particular. And I went to Zambia, and the reason we, we were doing some work on Zambia, because the bank, the World Bank, um, in our view, was doing some pretty nutty things in the name of structural adjustment at that time, including introducing user fees into health and liberalizing the grain marketing system in, I think, what might kindly be described as a somewhat reckless fashion. Um, just after a major harvest, a major crop failure. Um, but what really struck me, so I, I went there to write a, a bunch of things about structural adjustment in the World Bank, but um, I ended up spending about three weeks in villages in eastern province, and, yeah, which is a very poor part of, um, of Zambia. And at that time in particular, it was pretty desperate because it was just in the year after the, um, after a very severe drought. And the thing I was really struck by, so, you know, I was pestering all these villagers, asking them stuff about user fees and health and um, liberalisation of grain marketing and that sort of thing, which was a big concern. But the thing that really came out, actually, was the passion of desperately poor parents to get their kids into school. And it was sort of indescribable, in a way, because there was no obvious reason for it. You know, it's not like, you know, we're going to get our kids into school because there are great jobs out there that we can see, you know, if we educate our kids. But, you know, this extraordinary belief in the power of education to transform their lives. So I, I went back to Oxfam and, you know, and I said to you know, the directors that, you know, we're missing a trick here because we're focusing on all these big macroeconomic issues. But, you know, what people tell you when you go to villages is they want to get their kids in school. And it, it, it wasn't regarded as a sort of sexy campaigning subject. And it, it took us two or three years, actually, to get it on the agenda with Oxfam. And we eventually ran a campaign on, on education. I did a book on education. And then by a sort of circuitous route, I ended up back in the UN working on education about um, ten years later as head of the Education for All Global Monitoring Report. And when I was doing that, I actually visited um, Kenya, and I, I went to a, a Kibera, which is a lot of you know is one of the biggest slums in, in Africa. And I spent a few days in Kibera. And it was the same story. Actually, you had this extraordinary drive on the part of desperately poor people to get their kids into school. And you know, when economists look at it, you know, they'll talk about rate of returns or that sort of thing. But yeah, this is nothing to do with rate of returns. Yeah, this is something to do with belief in the transformative power of education. And the thing I was really struck by working in the UN is that UNESCO in particular has this unrivaled ability to take incredibly interesting subjects and make them deathly boring. <laughs> and, you know, like working in UNESCO, it's sort of like, I don't know, you're probably part of the generation that has read Harry Potter, which I have as well, should I? <laughs> but, 
you know, there are these characters in Harry Potter called the Dementors, which a lot of you will know. And they sort of control things by sucking energy out of you. And, and that's actually what it's like in UNESCO, working on, on education. But the, 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 the image I was always left with was the discrepancy between the sort of debates that were going on in the UN about the Millennium Development Goals and Education for All Goals, and what you get when you're on the ground, you know, whether it's in India or, or Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America. So, anyway, that, that was the way that I came into education. And I, I think for me, you know, the, the reason it's such an important area and such a central part of the Millennium Development Goals is that, you know, I mean, I don't need to tell anybody in this room about the power of education because none of you would be here unless you have the opportunity to have fantastic educations. But, of course, those opportunities are, di- are, are denied to the vast majority of people who live in developing countries. And they're denied on a very systematic basis, on the basis of the wealth of your parents, or the basis of the part of the country that you happen to be born into, the language you happen to speak, the colour of your skin, the caste you happen to belong to. So the distribution of opportunity in education is structurally disadvantaged against many people. And I've always had a great interest in understanding that because I think it goes to the heart of much wider development challenges. Because, you know, we know that countries that fail in education don't succeed in other areas. You know, it's hard to think of a country that has gone nowhere in education, that has sustained high growth, high inclusive growth, rapid rates of poverty reduction, declines in child mortality, improvements in maternal mortality. And you, know, you can argue industry about which way causation goes in these things. But the power of association here is so strong that I think it's indicative that you know, if you get education wrong, you don't succeed in other areas of, um, of development. And the, 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 the area that I'm particularly interested in and that I want to talk about um, today, let me just... Um, what I want to do is, is a few things, which is one, I want to give you a sense of where we're going globally on education, because the, the Millennium Development Goals set a number of targets on education. They weren't particularly well crafted, as a matter of fact, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, I, I want to, in that context, address the question of who's being left behind, because you know, we have seen a lot of progress in education. You know, in our area, if you work on the Millennium Development Goals, you're, you're usually a bearer of bad news, um, but there is actually quite a lot of good news in education, which I'll, I'll come back to in a second, but it's a partial good news story. <coughs> um, there are a whole bunch of debates that are going on in the education field uh, that are generating vast amounts of heat um, that is inversely related to the amount of light that they're generating. And I'll come back to that in a second, but a lot of the discussion about progress in education has actually become incredibly ideological on both sides. You know, education has become almost like a touchstone for how you view the market, how you view the role of the state, how you view the role of the private sector as a, as a provider. And you know, people grab evidence from um, one side of the debate or the other, often to sustain arguments which, in my view, don't really address the underlying challenges in, in the education 
sector. Um, I, I want to then talk about what I see as some of the systemic failures um, in education. And I use the word systemic here advisedly because a lot of the evidence on education, especially in the last few years actually, where there's been a big growth of randomised control type evidence in education, which I, I think has actually cast a lot of light on some of the underlying problems. But at the same time, it's sort of diverted attention away from some of the bigger picture issues that need to be addressed, which are about the functioning of education systems and about the interaction between education systems and other systems. There's, there's a terrible tendency in any debate on the MDGs to think in silos. You know, the health guys talk about the health goals, the education guys talk about the education goals, the poverty guys talk about the poverty goals. But I, I think you know, it's probably blinding the obvious to anybody in this room that you know, the idea that you can progress in education and not progress in poverty or not progress in health is a bit far-fetched. But, um, you know, but the, the debates on these issues aren't particularly joined up. And then I want to say something about um, you know, what I see as some of the lessons for um, the post-2015 debate, which at the moment is going nowhere very, very slowly. Um, so look, let, let, let me just start with um, global trends. And forgive me, because I'm, I'm sure all of you, you know, many of you are working in a much more detailed way in individual regions. But I just want to give you a sort of bird's eye view of some of the big global trends. So as a lot of you will know, the main um, Millennium Development Goal that was adopted in education was this goal of getting all, of achieving universal primary education by 2015. And there are a bunch of subsidiary goals as well. So you know, the gender, there was a gender parity goal that was linked to that. You know, there was some sort of vague secondary education goal as well. Uh, I should say actually that the Millennium Development Goals are incredibly reductionist on education. There's another set of goals, which are called the Education for All Goals, which were adopted back in 2000, which cover a much broader spectrum of issues, from early childhood to uh, primary to education quality to adult literacy, you know, stuff that isn't really in the, in, the, in, in the Millennium Development Goals. I'll come back to that in, in, the, in a little while. But... This is, the broad, this is the broad trend. So if you look at the, the global picture, which is this one, we have actually seen some pretty extraordinary progress. So out-of-school numbers are pretty much half. They've come down from 107 million to 57 million. This is for primary school um, age children. So that's a good news story. And, and actually behind that... I should say there are some pretty extraordinary stories. You know, when I was working in Oxfam on education, you know, I visited countries like Mozambique and Tanzania, Ghana, Senegal. If, if you'd said to me, or to anybody else then, that these countries would be in touching distance of universal primary education by 2014, you know, we would have laughed at you. And yet, in each case, they are. You know, um, Bangladesh which had some of the world's biggest gender disparities back in the mid-1990s, has pretty much closed the gender gap. In fact, it has closed the gender gap in primary education, not in secondary. But, you know, I mean, these are pretty extraordinary achievements at one level. Um, and that in inevitably, there are all sorts of complicated things going on under that headline story. So, 
Um, you'll, you'll notice that the global trend pretty much follows the South and West Asia trend. And if you broke South and West Asia down, you'd find that that's really about India. Um, you know, it's about this massive increase in primary school enrollment under the SSA program in India after 2000, which explains actually something like 90% of the global drop in out-of-school numbers. The general decline <coughs> um, in sub-Saharan Africa, but as you can see, that's not a particularly s steep slope. You, you'll, you'll also notice that if you look at the uh, vertical from around 2008 that it plateaus so virtually all of the decline in out of school numbers that we've seen since 2000 happened between actually almost all of it happened between 2000 and 2006 but if you, know, if you take a period since 2008 very little has happened so you know, the, we hit the buffers basically in, in, in 2000 and, uh, and, and eight. Now, a, a lot of that progress, uh, and I think this is a really important point, was driven by what I would describe as low-hanging fruit interventions. You know, the, 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 this 50 million that were brought into the school system were brought in because you had this big drive in Africa in particular and, and in India to eliminate user fees in education, so the cost barriers came down in a lot of countries. There were big investments in localised classroom construction programmes, so bringing classrooms closer to communities. You know, more investment in teachers and textbooks and all, all the sort of obvious stuff. And as a result of that, you know, kid, kids who were on the margin, you know, who were out of school, you know, maybe because their parents couldn't quite afford the uniform cost or, or the, the school costs, were able to enter in, into school. Girls who were out of school because the school was four kilometres away, you know, when it, was, when it became one and a half kilometres away, were able to go to school. So yes, there's a broad, low-hanging fruit bunch of things going on. Um, that, that's on um, access. Um, th this is a graph, I'm sorry, it's not particularly clear, but bear, bear with me for a second. Um, you, you know, one of the non-debates that goes on in education is about quantity and quality. You know, there are people like uh, Lam Pritchett in Harvard, you know, who's really focused on what, you know, what he describes as the great learning deficit, and he's very critical of other people who he says, you know, haven't focused sufficiently on learning because you're only talking about access. You, you know, I think almost everyone who works on education in a serious way believes that education is about access plus learning. You know, you don't want one, with, you, know, you, you don't get learning without the access, but you don't want access without the learning. So it's the two things together. Now, what, what this shows you, if, you, if you just focus on these two bars and this uh, maroon colored band, th this is the proportion of children who get to grade four of primary school but come out without basic literacy and basic numeracy skills. That's after four years, and in some cases more than four years because, of course, there's repetition going on in the school system. Um, but you can see, if you take the bar for sub-Saharan Africa, the, 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 this part of it, roughly one-third, uh, a kid who didn't reach grade four. So a third of sub-Saharan Africa still doesn't get four years in education. Roughly, just under another third, gets the grade four, um, 
but in a pure learning sense, may as well not have bothered because they, they come out of school uh, with literacy and numeracy skills that are equivalent to having just one year or two years in, in education. And the final part, like roughly, whatever it is, 40%, go through grade four and come out you know, with roughly the sort of numeracy and literacy skills that you might anticipate. So what we've got at a global level, and you can see this, you know, it breaks it down by, by different regions, but what we've got at a global level uh, or the, 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 the challenge that we're confronting is that we've hit the buffers on access um, and there's clearly a massive quality problem going on. We've got too many kids who are in school um, but they're in school but not learning. Now, <clears throat> my own view is that what is behind certainly the first part but I think also the second part is the problem of inequality in education which hasn't been sufficiently addressed. And um, I, I want to illustrate this, if I may, by a measurement tool that we developed when I was in UNESCO. And what we did with this tool um, was, first of all, to say, you know, if, to, to think of education in a way as you would think about income poverty. So, you know, when we think about income poverty, we have these thresholds, you know, $1.25, $2.50. You can argue about the thresholds, but you know, they tell you something useful. So what we said in education was what, what's the minimum of education that you need to acquire basic literacy skills? And, and most people who work on this from a pedagogical perspective would say it's four years. You know, if you have less than four years, you're not going to acquire, or you have very little chance of acquiring sustained literacy and numeracy skills. If you get two years, you know, it's... Um, you're out of the game, basically. Whatever skills you acquire, you're likely to lose as you, uh, as, as you grow up. So, we used, so what we did, we used census data and microdata, DHS mainly microdata and mixed microdata, to construct prof national profiles of education poverty. Um, and then we used that to say, well, who are the education poor in, in these countries? Um, and this is just to take you... So th this is it's a bit of a random collection of countries, but it'll give you a, an idea. So th this is the proportion of people. It's in the um, 17 to 22 age range, if I remember. Oh, sorry, yeah, 17 to 22 age range. The proportion of people by country who have less than four years of school. So you can see in a country like Burkina Faso or Chad, you know, you're up in 60% plus in the Philippines it's whatever it is 8% um, that, that's the two year threshold so you, know, you, you can see here that not only do you have very intense deprivation, very widespread less than four year um, education poverty in the African part of the spectrum but most of those in education poverty actually have less than two years you know, which gives you a sort of sense of the, um, the, the challenge that many of these countries face. But then if you say, um, th this is the wealth effect. So if you're from the poorest 20% in these countries, you know, what, what's your additional risk? The, you know, the risk premium on having a parent, being born into a household where your parent lives in poverty. And the, the, these bars that are appearing here tell you what the wealth effect is. This tells you the effect for girls 
who are born into poor households. So there's a gender and wealth effect. And you can see that, um, you, you know, that being a poor girl in Morocco or in Yemen or Nigeria carries a huge risk premium relative to the rest of the population. Um, I, I, I just want to carry this forward because it, it, it comes back to an important point that I want to make, which is that if you wanted to accelerate progress towards these goals that have been set, you need to understand first who's being left behind and why they're being left behind. And interestingly, debates in education generally don't ask these questions. You know, you tend to, on the MDGs in particular, you have these very wide-ranging national average type debates about you know, what, what's holding back progress. But um, this is using the same tool that I described to look at education poverty in one country, which is Nigeria. Um, and um, so the, 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 this lines up a bunch of countries on the average number of years of schooling. You can see going from 0 to 14. So you've got Ukraine, I see a bad example to choose in the current context. I promise I didn't put that there deliberately for any particular reason. But um, you know, Ukraine is 12 years plus, Central African Republic, you know, way, way down at the other end of the spectrum. If you, if you look at Nigeria as a national average, like the national average years of schooling in Nigeria for 15 to 17 year olds, this is a little bit out, but this data is two years old, so it's probably, um, it's, it's probably changed a little bit. But um, it's 6.7 years. But then if you look behind that average, and you say, well, what, what, what does it look like for a rich Nigerian versus a poor Nigerian? So you've got a gap of six years. So it, it, being, being born into the poorest 20% in Nigeria as a child halves the number of years you're going to get in, into school. Sorry, more than halves the number of years you're going to get in, in school. But the wealth effect is just one part of it because there's also rural-urban divisions that cut across here. So being a poor rural person carries a big disadvantage relative to being a poor urban person. Um, and, and then cutting across that, you've got the gender effect. So being a poor rural girl carries a double disadvantage in this context, as you can see. You're down to an average of 2.6 years of schooling. And then if you look below that level, uh, to the, 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 this, is the, this is basically poor rural girls in northern Nigeria, mainly Hausa girls. You're down to less than one year, one predicted year in schooling on the basis of the census data for that age group. Now, the, the, I think the obvious conclusion that you might draw from this is that if you wanted to make that, cut that line steeper, you know, the, the global out-of-school line, th th this is the part of the population that you need to be focusing on. And the sort of issues that are keeping young Nigerian girls and young Nigerian boys out of school at that end of the spectrum are not necessarily principally about education, actually. You know, in the case of poor Hauser girls, early marriage is a huge factor driving uh, girls out of school or keeping girls out of school. In the case of urban boys, it's participation in labour 
markets, which is a function of household poverty. So, you know, just plonking a school near a slum where there are a bunch of kids out of school for, 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 for this type of group is not going to be the, the, um, the, the breakthrough strategy. Um, the, the, this is um, showing you the, the, the same sort of thing, but for a slightly different group. So it's taking extreme education poverty for a group of countries here. So it's basically telling you that 25% of Nigerians in that age group, 17 to 22, um, so these are the national averages for less than two years of education in this group of countries um, but again, again this is just takes you behind the national average to say, well, who is being left behind in this? And you can see that in Ghana, it's northern region rural girls who are the most disadvantaged. Uh, in Kenya, it's rural Somali girls. In India, Uttar, you know, girls in Uttar Pradesh, because although India's made huge progress, one group has been really left behind. You still have 10% of girls in Uttar Pradesh who are out of school. Yeah, despite all the massive progress that's, that's happened in, in, in India. But what, what, this sort of, what this tool does, I, I think, it, it focuses a, a attention on the groups that you need to bring in to, to the centre of the policy debate. Um, so let, let, let me... Um, turn now to one, one important question. You know, the a lot of people, when you ask about education in the MDGs, will say this is basically a good news story because if you look at the enrolment rates, you know, they're, they're all heading north. So this is this is good news. But interestingly, even in countries that are doing well on enrolment, you often see the inequalities widen. And this is just to illustrate. I've, I've taken, we, we actually looked at the data for 21 countries in Africa. This is 19 of them. So two essentially have neutral results. But um, th th this is what has happened in each of these countries um, in terms of the change in average years of schooling over two survey periods from 2000 onwards. So it's variable. You know, some of them are 2002, 2008, some of them 2001, 2007, or whatever. So you know, it, it's not strictly comparable across countries. So it's just taking these two survey periods. But the question is, what's happened to the gap in years of schooling between the richest 20% and the bottom 20%. Now, if that was happening in an equitable basis, and if we countries were sort of progressing in education by getting the poorest into school, you'd see that gap narrowing. Um, th this is for increases, this 0 to 1.5. And this shows you what's happened to the gap. So the disparity in years of schooling has actually increased since 2000 in the context of overall national progress. And I think this raises a really fundamental question actually about how we think about goal setting. Because at one level, you, you, know, you could say if you adopted a very simple approach to the MDGs, um, you would say this is... 
you would say, this is the measure we're using, this is progress. You know, we're getting more kids into school, on average, uh, and on average they're spending longer in school. If your starting point is a, is a rights-based approach, where you say, look, everyone should have the same opportunity, the same entitlement to education, irrespective of the wealth of their parents, um, that those bars should count as a negative. But because equity was never established as a central part of the NDG framework, we focus on the national average, and I think that yeah, that's been a huge drawback to the whole exercise, actually. And, and I'll come back to this right at the end. Um, now, um, I, I mentioned this point about um, learning, and it, it is absolutely fundamental because if you look at the, some of the countries that have done incredibly well on access on enrolment, um, some the, the the learning outcomes really leave a lot to be desired. So th this is India, you know, which is the country that's driven the overall progress in education. It's from a survey called ACER. I can't remember what ACER stands for off the top of my head, but it, it's basically an annual um, survey of rural households in India that applies a very... They, they've developed this... It's an NGO called Pratam in India, and they've developed this really, I, I think, effective assessment tool where you know, rather than trying to do a PISA or a TIMS, you know, one of these big global assessment things, you know, which are complicated and, and costly to roll out, they basically do nationally representative sample surveys where they ask really simple questions. So they'll go to kids in grade five of a classroom and give them a grade two test and ask, you know, can, can you complete, can you read a sentence that a grade two kid ought to be able to read? Can you add sums that grade two kids can add. Um, and this gives you um, the proportions of children in standard five in India who can read, who are unable to read a standard two text. It compares public schools and private schools. That's not the point I want to make, actually. The point I want to make, you know, it's a pretty extraordinary state of affairs when you have 60% of kids in standard five who can't read standard two text. You know, this actually points to really deep systemic failure in the system. Now, there are people, um, some of you might be familiar with the work of James Tooley. Um, and, and actually, what I'd recommend, I mean, anyone who's interested in how not to do econometrics should go and um, look at James Tooley's econometrics. But, but he <laughs> essentially uses evidence like this to say, well, yeah, this is case proven. Um, private schools do better than public schools. And therefore, the smart thing to do is to shift resources into private schools, you know, whether through vouchers or, or, or some other sort of mechanism. I, I'll come back to that in a second, because it, that's one of the things that has sparked this great, what I call the great diversionary debate on education. You know, it, the question raises, you know, is this about the inherent, in the inherent advantages of private school providers? Or is it about state failure? Yeah, it's a very fundamental question, actually. So uh, I'll come back to that in a little while. Um, th this tells you roughly the same sort of story from um, Tanzania. And it charts the proportion of students that are able to read a standard uh, two-level story in Kiswahili by grade. So you can see that by standard seven, you've still got a quarter of children after seven years of schooling who can't read a standard two text. 
Now, you know, if you think of the implications of that for returns on public, I mean, leave, leave aside all the sort of rights-based stuff, what this means for the efficiency of investments in education, it's really a catastrophe. And actually, this graph only captures the half of it, because you have to remember that by this stage, a lot of the worst-performing kids have dropped out of school. So you know, if you were to include kids who have dropped out of school on this chart, you, you, know, you, you would be down here. So, you know, so th this challenge of you know, the fact that we've got a lot more kids into school, because Tanzania is one of the countries that is now quite close to universal primary education. But you know, does that really count as universal primary education when you know, kids come out of school after seven years? I mean, it, it, it basically means that the value added by grade of five years in education for a quarter of those kids is zero, you know, which is um, worrying. So what, what, what are these um, great diversion debates? So I, I think there are four, actually probably more than that. Um, I was being charitable. So uh, you know, one, one of them is this um, Lam Pritchard and a lot of people in the World Bank who say, look, you know, the thing we got wrong on education is we all focused on quantity, getting kids into school, and we didn't focus on quality. Um, actually, to be honest, it's complete nonsense. You know, that most of us who have worked on education have thought about both, and I think anyone who spent any time in a village anywhere or, or, or an urban slum knows that parents care about quality as well as quantity. But the dangerous thing that's happening with that debate is that it's actually shifted the spotlight away from the access question. You know, it's almost become like, like let's not talk about enrolment anymore because we know too many kids are getting into school and they're not learning. So let's talk about learning. Actually, we should be talking about both. You know, and the, the fact that so many people who work on this stuff in the World Bank and elsewhere, and people like Mark Richard, actually, are not focusing their attention on these kids who have been left out. You know, like... Uh, girls pushed into early marriage in Nigeria, like kids who are in labour markets in, across South Asia, is part of the problem. You know, I mean, reaching those kids and delivering effective education is, is the big challenge. This debate on public versus private, you know, it, it's, it's actually a sort of bizarre discussion in a way, because if you look at the real evidence that comes out of it, what, 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 two things to my mind, you, you know, there's, there's a mountain of RCT type studies on this, but two, two things really come out, which is the performance of public schools that have absorbed large intakes quickly is pretty shocking, and it's getting worse. So the, the India data is actually getting worse over time. But actually, private school providers and in particular, the low-fee private school providers... Okay. Okay. I think these are all tests for me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See if I can maintain my focus. <laughs> this guy's a private school applicant. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the low-fee private schools that serve the poor actually don't perform that much better than, um, than public providers. And you have to remember there's an endogeneity issue here as well. That the motivation of a parent who sends their kid to that school it tells you something about the household characteristics, which is very hard to pick up in the data. So, you know, it, I mean, if you just look at, say, the poverty 
variables or the simple household characteristics, it, it may come out that private schools have an advantage. But you know, how do you plug in the parental motivation part of this? You know, a parent who's willing to pay 50 cents a day or, or whatever. You know, I mean, it may not be the quality of the, the, the quality of what you get in school that's, um, that, that's, that's, that's doing that. I mean, interestingly, there are very few longitudinal studies on this, but there's one for Andhra Pradesh in India. And the findings are actually quite interesting because it, it, it shows that kids who go, in, and this is using RCT, but from lottery data, so, you know, it's pretty robust. And what it shows is that kids who go to private schools, on average, do almost no better. There's, you know, there's a very slight variation. On maths and Telugu, there's no difference at all. But on English, there's a big difference. And it's basically that private schools are really focusing their attention on English language training to get kids into you know, English language bits of the, of the labour market. But, but, you know, what, but what the serious studies in this area show is that really, you know, both parts of this are failing. You know, it's not that you've got a really high-performing, low-cost private school sector and an underperforming state sector. You've got a whole system that's underperforming. Yeah, there's a big debate that rages about primary versus secondary education. You know, shouldn't, given that we live in an increasingly knowledge-based global economy, shouldn't we be focusing more resources on secondary and tertiary and less on primary? And, and, you know, there are a lot of people in the bank who have done this rate of return analysis, which, you know, purports to show that returns are now higher in secondary. And you're probably because I'm not an economist. The question I always ask is, um, show me a student that's done brilliantly in secondary that didn't go to primary school. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it's a weird way of looking, about, looking at education, and it's a sort of very segmented sort, sort of approach. There's a debate about, um, you know, is it about the money or is it about efficiency? It's actually about both. You, you know, I mean, if you, well, you look at education systems across Africa, they're massively under-resourced, and the resources that do go into them are not particularly efficiently deployed. And they're not equitably de- deployed. How long have I got, actually? Perfect, thank you. That's great. Um, I should have shared that at the beginning. Um, so, look, I, I want to illustrate this, if I may. I'm, I'm sorry to use specific examples, but I chose them because I think they're specific examples that tell a wider story. And I want to use an example from some work that we did in Kenya, actually, on, on um, financing, to, to, to illustrate what I think is one of the big uh, equity challenges in financing. Let me come back to that. Um, so, what, what this is, we, we were asked to do some work, actually before I joined that when I was in the Brookings Institution, by the Ministry for Northern Kenya. And for those of you who know Kenya, this, was a, this is a ministry, actually it was a ministry because it's been devolved out of business under the new regime, but um, it's a ministry that serves the arid and the semi-arid parts of, um, of Kenya. And these are the parts of Kenya with the highest incidence of poverty, the worst nutritional indicators, the worst child health indicators. It's not where most poor Kenyans live, but it's the areas with the worst levels of poverty. But um, they are the areas that account for most out-of-school children in Kenya. So these um, counties are the ones marked in, in red. And what the, I mean, this graph shows in a very simple form is this is the share of each county, the 47 counties in Kenya. This shows you the share of each county 
um, um, in the primary school age population of Kendall. And the y-axis shows you the share of each county in the outer school, primary school age population of Kenya. So if you imagine, if there was a 45 degree line running up there, you know, if you're on that upper quadrant on the top, uh, top left, as you look at it, you account for a bigger proportion of outer school children than your share of primary school children. And you can see that almost all of these northern counties are way, way to the left of where that 45 degree line would be. Takana, Wajir, Garissa, and, and so on. Now, what, what you have in Kenya... So let me just... What, what you have in Kenya is, an, in public financing for education, is basically a straight per-pupil grant straight per pupil transfer. So it's the same amount of money that goes to each student, irrespective of which part of the country they live in. And there's a complicated formula which is used to do this, but that's essentially what it comes down to. Um, now, so the way the formula works is, you know, you, you enroll a kid in a class in a school, and the, the money follows the kid. And that's, that's how the transfer works. But what does that mean if you happen to be in a county with a lot of out-of-school kids? It basically means you're penalised through the financing formula. And so what this graph shows you is the proportion of the education, primary school education budget that you get by county compared to what you would expect to get by county if you had a purely equal distribution for all children. So this county here um, is where it's equality. So that's basically 45, that's where the 45 degree line would run. All of these counties down here are getting less. So you can see that Takana is getting about 25% of what it would expect to get if the formula allocated on the basis of primary school age children rather than primary school age children in school. Do you see what I mean? So it's, it's basically, you know, if, if you're in a sort of wealthier part of Kenya that's got you know, near to university enrollment, you do very well out of the system. If you're, in the other, if you're in the other part, you do very badly out of the system. And you can see that all of those counties that I mentioned, Cacciado is, a, is an outlier for various complicated reasons that I, I won't go into. But, all of those counties that account for the bulk of children out of school are penalised through the financing system. And th this is actually a really widespread system across Africa. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not universal. South Africa has a diff you know, very different equitable financing approach. But this is typically what it, what it looks like. And if you did it for secondary schooling, it looks much worse than that. Because obviously, you know, the more kids that drop out, you progress through the system, the more unequal... Um, it becomes. So, so what we did with this study, we basically asked the question, well, you know, what, what would the budget look like if you attach some equity weighting into the financing formula? If you said, and we, we basically just ran two, actually we did dozens, but we do, there were two simplified versions of it. So one of them said, well, what about if you gave half of the allocation on the basis of the number of children who live in the county, irrespective of whether they're in school or not, on the basis you could use those resources to pull them into school. Um, and the other half, as is currently provided you know, on the school-based transfer system, 
So that was one approach. The second one was a reinforced equity model, um, where you would weight it for national poverty, for the gender ratio, so in other words, counties with a big, bigger gender gap would get more um, counties that, that our, basically our counties would get more because they were the most disadvantaged and the furthest behind and, and so on. And th th this is just to show you what the model looks like. So basically the counties that are to the right of this line, it, 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 that's the share of the current budget on the y-axis. This is the, what the share would look like under our first allocation on the x-axis. If you're to the right of the line, it basically means you've, you, know, you, you, you benefit out of the equitable formula. So that's the 50-50. That's what the 50-50 allocation would look like. And this is what the, um, the reinforced equity allocation would look like. You, know, you can see the counties like Takana, Wajir, Garissa and Mandira would, um, would, would benefit a lot. Now, interestingly, you know, we, um, we were asked to do this by the Ministry for Northern Kenya. And then we got contracted by the Revenue Commission to, to, you know, to help them run some models for the formula. And, th and then we did a presentation for the Cabinet in, um, in, in Kenya for the last government. And it was quite interesting because in the first part of the meeting, everyone was very enthusiastic about, the, about equity. You know, the, the new constitution has equity stamps all over it, we want more equality, we, you know, we believe in equity in Kenya, um, etc. Then we showed these. And the mood in the room actually changed quite distinctly because this is, uh, this is redistributed. So this is about taking money away from wealthier parts of Kenya and reallocating it to poorer parts. And, you know, and, and there is an argument, you know, the World Bank have done a lot of work on Kenya on this, where you know, they argue that you know, this is the worst type of thing that you can do with a devolved budget, because you know, if you overtax the wealthy parts of Kenya and transfer resources to parts that are poorer, you know, you potentially stifle growth in the wealthier parts, you reduce opportunities for migration, you know, all the familiar arguments. But, you know, but the thing is, you know, I understand by the argument that if you want to get those kids in those counties into school in Kenya, you have to do something like this. And it is redistributed. And, you know, so we, we live in an era, unfortunately, when the, the, the word redistribution has become a bit um, of a no-go area. But... Um, so, what, what are some of the lessons for the post-2015 debate? So, I, I pulled out five, then maybe, maybe we can, just in, in discussion, um, go, go through them in a bit more detail. So, <clears throat> I think the first point is that if we're serious about achieving whatever goals we set in education, so, you know, we're now talking about goals for 2030, and as usual, they'll be heroically ambitious, you know, because no government in the world gives a damn about signing up for any goal in 2030 because they'll never be held accountable for it. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we will doubtless end up with some usually ambitious goal. Um, what I've been arguing for is an approach that says, you know, let, let's take that as a given. We want to be really ambitious. But in order to realise our ambition, let's adopt near-term equity targets. So instead of just saying, you know, we want universal lower secondary education by 2030, let's say as part of that commitment and as part of the process for getting there, we'll halve the gap in school attendance 
between the richest 20% and the poorest 20% over the next five years. We'll take the 20 worst performing districts in the country and the 20 best performing districts in the country and we'll halve the learning achievement gap between them. And I think that sort of approach, you know, to the extent that these things like the NDGs serve any value at all, which is questionable, it would at least concentrate public debate on something that has a tangible bearing on our prospects for achieving progress. And the point of this, I should add, at least in the way I think about it, is not that you want a system in which governments go and report on this stuff to the UN. You want them reporting on it to their own citizens. You know, so I, I would say it's really important that these equity goals be framed in national debates and not just be sort of handed down from on high um, in the UN. Think about the early years. You know, there are 160 million kids who go to primary school in developing countries every year who have experienced malnutrition. That is uh, two standard deviations stunting. Now, all of the evidence on this is absolutely unequivocal that you know, once you've had that experience, there is no rewind button. You know, there are some things you can do through remedial stuff. But basically, you carry that burden with you throughout your school life. It massively increases your prospects of, drop, of not getting into school, of dropping out of school, of underachieving in school. You carry the disadvantage into the labour market um, as an adult. And yet, if you look at the policy interventions that sort of link up early childhood provision with education, they're very, very weak. And again, it's because of this siloed approach. You know, this is seen in some of the health sector does. You know, it's actually, to my mind, it's more important than almost anything you can do in a classroom to make sure that by the time kids get to school, they haven't been malnourished um, and that they've had some opportunity to develop in a literate environment, and that's about early childhood provision. We need to completely rethink what happens in the name of teacher training in developing countries. You know, I was staggered, actually. I had an experience recently. I was asked to go to Rajasthan in India by um, there's, there's one of the big commercial banks in India called the ICICI Bank. I don't know if you know, but they have a big foundation. Um, and they're doing all sorts of work on the curriculum development and other, and other stuff. And they, they, and they asked me to go and do some work for them. And I, I went to visit a teacher training college in Rajasthan. It's a beautiful college, you know, full of fancy computers and beautiful screens and you know, virtual learning devices. And I had a, a meeting with the, with the intake, and it was a bit like a room like this, but, but there were about 100 kids there you know, who were just in their first year of, uh, I think it's a two-year course. And I said to them, you know, look, can you maybe share with me why you wanted to come into education? You know, what, what drove you to want to be, become a teacher? And, you know, you sort of think that what you're going to get back is, well, you know, we want to make India a first-rate power or, you know, we want to help our country and lift people out of poverty. And, and actually what you get is, you know, well, you know, we got really low marks in the civil service entry exam. And I'm not, and I'm not kidding, I'm going to check this. You, you, can, you, you require a lower mark for getting into teacher training in India than you do for getting into the lowest grade of the police force. Now... And it's the same, you know, I'm not, I'm not picking India as an example here, but, you know, it's the same in many other countries. Now, you know, this tells you, 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 you can't build high-quality education on that type of recruitment system. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're putting in place the wrong incentives. So, you know, there's a, there's a question of recruitment. There's also a question of training. 
You know, I, I'm always amazed. I have these endless debates with Lark Pritchard, <clears throat> you know, who looks at these learning assessment graphs and throws his hand up in horror and says, how can this be? You know, countries are spending 5% of GDP on education. You saw those figures on India, on Tanzania, no one's learning anything. You know, what's going on? I mean, to me, it's completely obvious what's going on. I mean, what, why would you expect um, you recruit teachers um, who are not motivated, uh, you train them basically to teach by rote, you have no special training for first-generation learners. And I can't emphasize this enough. You know, if, you go to, if you go to the households of the kids who have just come in to education systems in Africa and South Asia, you're talking about kids from households where the parents often have zero education, where there is no written material in the household. And they're starting school um, with a teacher bombarding them with rote learning. You know, why, why would you expect them to learn? Like, under, under what circumstances could you learn in that environment? I mean, to me, you know, I'm the opposite of love. I, my, the thing I find astonishing is that the numbers don't look much worse, actually. Um, and, and the other point is that most countries, in the way they allocate their teachers, they allocate their most qualified teachers and have the best textbook provision in the higher grades. You know, I mean, so you know, your basic, so the, the, the basic point here is that if you don't pick up your, your essential learning skills in the first two grades, you, know, you are never going to progress. I mean, that's why those standard five versus grade two numbers look like they do. So you, know, you want your best teachers in those first two grades. You know, what all of the RCT stuff shows from South Asia is that remedial teaching is far more important than the pupil-teacher ratio in terms of, um, of learning outcomes. So you know, that, this is um, absolutely fundamental. You know, we need to end this nonsense about this debate, are we talking about learning or are we talking about access, and, and go back to the real world. You know, if I said to anybody in this room, you know, do, you want, do you want your brother or sister to go to a school where they have access or where they learn, you would laugh at it. You know, this, is, this isn't how people think about education. You know, I mean, all of us want our kids or our siblings to have a chance of a decent quality education, by which we mean you know, getting through a full primary cycle, getting into secondary school, and coming out with the basic skills and competencies that you need to flourish and to realise your potential. Last point, it's not all about education. You know, the, the thing I'm often struck by working in the UN, you put a bunch of educationists in a room, um, and apart from sending every non-educationalist to sleep, you know, they're, they're immediately into, you know, the finer points of curriculum development, pedagogy, you know, what's the optimal, optimal distance between kids and the blackboard, God, God knows what. But, you know, if you look at education in rich countries, like the, the thing that comes out of these PISA surveys, you know, whether you're talking about the UK or the US, that roughly 40% of it is to do with what goes on in schools. 60% of it is to do with the social and economic characteristics of the children and their parents. So, you know, the idea you can make progress in education without tackling these big poverty issues and these wider disadvantage issues is, is fanciful. And you know, the reason that countries like Brazil and Mexico have done very well on this is precisely because they've joined up those different agendas through cash transfer programs um, and other mechanisms. So, uh, I think I'm going to leave it there, actually, and then maybe throw it up for discussion.
Thank you so much.